Depending on your interpretation of the work in question, in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, a Jewish and Christian scriptural document, Moses was told by God to forgive some types of debt every 49 or 50 years. Again, the actual span of time is up for debate, depending on how you read that particular portion of that particular scripture. But whatever the duration between these special years, called Jubilee years, They're meant, according to this document, to be a period of reset. All slaves should be freed, all prisoners returned to their families, all debts forgiven, perhaps especially those related to property rights like land, cattle, and other valuables. Jubilee is usually translated as something like year of release, though there's a chance that it's actually linguistically descended from an older root word that referred to the ram's horn that was reportedly blown when all debts were forgiven in this manner back in the day, making the translation something more like ram's horn blast of liberty. Interestingly, the justification for this jubilee year concept seems to have originated with the idea that the land belongs to Yahweh, to God, And thus, every 49 or 50 years, depending on your interpretation, you're meant to reset things, including human possessions and debt, but also the human use of God's property, meaning that, in many cases, when legally applied historically, the Jubilee year also required that Jewish people not work the land for the entire year, allowing nature to reclaim their fields which supports the assertion that this may have originated, like many religious traditions, as a narrative mechanism for enforcing a valuable practice, in this case, a field-fallowing cycle, allowing cropland to replenish its nutrients in a natural way after a long period of being worked for human-centric crop purposes. Whatever the case may be, though, it would seem that this concept was enforced for a while by historical Jewish tribes, but eventually fell out of legal enforcement sometime around 600 BC, since that's when some of the Israelite tribes were exiled from Israel, and the Torah specifies that this is a law that applies to the tribes living in their homeland. So by some interpretations, it needn't be adhered to when the people to which it's meant to apply are scattered around the world. That said, there are some Jews living in Israel and elsewhere who practice something like the Jubilee year, when the cycle comes back around, during a time in which they can do something about it. And some other non-Jewish people have also taken it up as a practice because it aligns in some way with their own religious or philosophical beliefs. Other peoples living in the cradle of civilization, roughly what we would today call the Middle East, had similar concepts baked into their laws and philosophies. But this idea didn't stop there. The ancient Athenians in the 6th century BC were overrun by tangles of debt that had left a huge percentage of the Athenian citizenry working their own land as serfs for someone else, giving a sixth of what they produced to their creditors. This was due to a system of credit and economics that had emerged during the previous generation that then spiraled out of control, leading to a very few incredibly wealthy Athenians, while everyone else was indebted to them. 
or indebted to someone who was themselves indebted to those few wealthy Athenians. A politician named Solon decided that this was an economic recipe for disaster, and that it was out of step with Athenian ethics. Thus, alongside other reforms related to representative equality in the government, the economic development of Athenian trade regulations and policies, and the revision and formalization of local weight and measurement metrics, he also declared what came to be known as the Sysakthaya, or shaking off of burdens. The Sysakthaya said, in essence, that people could no longer be put into slavery or serfdom because of debts, that all Athenians who had been enslaved up until that point would be freed, and that all contracts that had been made that allowed for such slavery and serfdom to result from a lack of payment would be immediately annulled. This was just one facet of a much larger set of economic, legal, and moral changes made by Solon, who, by the way, after acquiring the extraordinary power required to make all these changes, gave them up willingly once the work was done. He then retired from political life and left the country. But this particular change, arguably, had the most immediate impact for the most people, especially those who were the most oppressed and, up till this point, the least represented in the Athenian government. It may be no surprise that despite the lack of stickiness for these policies, which were upended within a few decades by future tyrants, this collection of changes made by Solon are widely considered to have paved the road toward democracy for the region, which in turn led to the many storied evolutions catalyzed by the Athenians and ancient Greece more broadly. What I'd like to talk about today is debt relief, the arguments for and against it, and what could happen if a widely publicized, specific type of debt relief were to be utilized in one of the most debt-ridden, wealthy countries in the world. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it's entitled, On Student Debt, Biden Must Decide Whose Loans to Cancel. According to the United States Department of Education, of the about 43 million people in the U.S. who are paying off student loan debt as of late 2019, nearly 60% of those debtors owe $20,000 or less, about 25% owe more than $40,000, and the remaining 15% owe somewhere around $30,000. 6% of that total population of debtors owes over $100,000, with around 2% of the total owing more than $200,000. And of that higher-end category, most debtors took out their loans for graduate school, a category that accounts for about 50% of all total outstanding education-related debt despite only accounting for 25% of the total number of borrowers. The average debt load for students graduating from higher education in the United States as of 2019 was $32,731, which is up from about $29,000 in 2018, one year previous. In total, there's about $1.6 trillion in federal and privately held student loan debt active in the United States as of 2020. To some, 
these numbers indicate that the marketplace for debt is working out kind of okay. 30% of all bachelor's degree students leave school without any debt. 80% of students pay off their college debt within 12 years of graduating. And the cost of unpaid debts to the economy, about $4 billion out of every $100 billion of loans made each year, are an expense that taxpayers cover currently. And supporters of the current paradigm say that this is far less than what taxpayers would cover if it was decided that this debt would be forgiven, either in its totality or in part, because that forgiveness would be paid for by the government and thus taxpayer revenue. To others, though, this number represents a blight on not just the future of those who owe all this money, but also the economy as a whole. It's easy to look at the numbers and say, hey, these graduates pay off their debt within 12 years on average, all is well. But that's 12 years of an additional expense that in many cases precludes those graduates from making other investments, which might otherwise then lead to positive economic outcomes for themselves and for the economy. They might buy assets like houses. They could invest in more education. They might work jobs that they prefer and which match their intended lifestyles and skill and knowledge sets. They might live where they prefer to live rather than having to cluster in areas with the highest paying jobs, which in turn causes all sorts of congestion-related problems, from inflated rental costs to infrastructural strain. The accrual of such debt and the filters that determine who can get it limits higher education to certain groups of people who can afford to take on that debt, and who have the proper economic reputation, which allows them to take on more debt in the first place. This dynamic also, it's been argued, creates issues related to social norms, like the surging norm of people waiting, in some cases for decades, to buy their own homes, to get married, and or to have children. In many cases, based on research that's been done into this trend, for financial reasons. They just cannot afford to take the next steps that have become, in the post-World War II globalized wealthy world at least, the common and thus planned and optimized for socially and economically expected life path milestones. Tuitions for such schools in the United States have also shot up dramatically, even as wages, adjusted for inflation, have remained flat. Tuition for a public four-year college in the United States increased 36% on average between 2008 and 2018 alone. And this shift is even more dramatic if we zoom out a few decades. The average cost for private college tuition in the U.S. in 1987 and 1988 was about $15,200, and that's up to about $34,700 today, more than double, while public institutions across that same period, increased from about $3,200 in the late 80s to over $10,000, three times as much on average by 2018. Part of the reason for this substantial price bloat is the increase in demand for such education, which in turn tends to lead to higher prices. And part of that demand has been driven by the increasing necessity to have a degree to even get an entry-level job in some industries even when someone without a degree is more professionally qualified or skillful than their peers who happen to have forked over the cash and four years of their life for a diploma, the default filtering mechanisms tend to put those with evidence of a university education at the front of the line. It's also been argued that the availability of financial aid 
both aid provided by grants and government institutions, and the availability of debt of college loans, has caused school costs to balloon in the past few decades. Because just like with medical institutions that know that they're getting paid by insurance companies, it's a lot more likely they can operate with a higher profit margin if it's a faceless institution paying the bills, up front at least, rather than an individual receiving those bills. This is why costs for medicines and procedures tend to be a lot higher in the United States than almost anywhere else in the world. And this is why, it's theorized, our academic institutions continue to up their prices. They know the money is out there, and they know these companies will provide higher and higher quantities of money to those who want loans. So why not claim more of that money for themselves? More money sloshing around in higher education, too, can create a competitive situation in which professors, but also other sorts of staff, must be paid more if you want to maintain a level of quality and competence that is equal to or better than that of the other university down the street or just across state lines. None of which is latently bad. It's arguably good to pay educators and folks like janitors and HR workers and so on who create the proper circumstances for learning to take place solid wages. It does become an issue, though, when some few employees pull in wildly disproportionate amounts of money, and some stars within those fields, in this case, most commonly, a very few professors and those at the highest levels of management, like some university presidents who make millions of dollars a year, when they claim most of that cash which might otherwise be spent on other things, or not collected in the first place, lowering attendance costs for students. It's also been argued that costs are increasing because expectations are increasing. This is partly the consequence of the aforementioned competitive academic landscape, but it's also the consequence of what we might call competitive branding efforts, the seeming need for schools to invest heavily in their sports teams, their logo-emblazoned sweatshirts, and their cafeterias, healthcare facilities, and the like. Many of these investments are arguably justified. There's a good argument to be made for better healthcare for everyone within society, in fact, not just students. But there have been many instances of schools charging ever-inflating tuitions, knowing that their students' loans will pay for it, and then funneling most of that money to their football teams, their slick new cafeterias, and to their president's bank account. And it's debatable whether or not that money might be better spent by the students, who wouldn't have had to pay it in the first place had their tuitions been lower but also potentially by other aspects of the school. Education-focused elements of the school at times are underfunded, even as the sports teams and cafeterias become increasingly spendy and snazzy. All that in mind, the question of the moment is whether existing and potentially future debt related to higher education should be covered by the government. And this is a question that relates to higher education directly, but also one that drifts into the wider world of economics and our approach to it. And that conversation is muddied by the current, as I record this at least, meta-variable of the global COVID-19 pandemic that has upended pretty much everything, including our global economic circumstances. Raw politics certainly plays a role in this discussion as well. In general, it's the Republican Party's policy to denounce any and all government spending, on most things anyway, 
though they do tend to be prolific spenders themselves when it comes to certain groups and industries when they are in power. And it's also their want to oppose anything that smacks of socialism, a term that has seen a lot of recent, fairly inaccurate use within political media, but which is broadly used in reference to anything that seems to redistribute wealth in some way, or which uses government funds to provide resources or services to everyone. I say that this term is generally misapplied in these sorts of discussions because libraries, public schools... Streetlights, roads, these are all arguably socialistic services that are broadly loved and supported within the United States by people all across the political spectrum. But these base-level socialistic expenditures are often ignored in this sort of political discourse. So this term is tactically applied to anything that doesn't fit within the agenda in question, which is fair enough, but it's also more than a little misleading. On the opposite side of the aisle, the mainstream Democratic Party is generally in favor of moderate, quote-unquote, socialistic policies, while the progressive wing of the party, a fuzzy term that has arisen in the wake of Bernie Sanders' culturally successful, if not literally successful, presidential run in 2016, to describe his general sense of politics and economics, and which has more recently been applied to other popular politicians like U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That progressive label applies to a slice of the party that tends to favor more social support measures, including pushes for free health care for everyone, free education, and social services that would, in theory at least, reduce or eliminate some aspects of poverty and homelessness in the United States. And I say in theory because there are a great many arguments coming from both sides of the traditional political spectrum about why these, so far at least, pie-in-the-sky ambitions wouldn't work in the U.S., socially, politically, or economically. And this discussion about debt reduction, which Biden's team, which is fairly center, big D, Democratic, has been positioning as a $10,000 reduction to existing higher educational debts and which the progressive wing of the party has been proposing as a full elimination of all higher education-related debt. That's all a microcosm of that larger conversation about what role the government should play when it comes to things like education, healthcare, and housing. The Republicans say that's not the role of the government, the Democrats say, well, maybe we can help a bit, and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party says, why don't we just use the power of the government to get rid of all of this debt, if it's so harmful, and they believe that it is harmful. Some countries, most prominently and successfully, I would argue, the Scandinavian countries of Northern Europe, including Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, and probably the Netherlands, Finland, and Iceland as well, already have policies similar to the ones being discussed in the U.S. right now in place, And though the application varies pretty substantially from country to country, many citizens in these countries take for granted that things like healthcare will be taken care of by the government, as will, in some cases, higher education and housing and other such fundamentals. Again, depending on the country in question. But these types of policies are more common in that part of the world, as of early 2021 at least. It's notable that those aforementioned countries are quite wealthy compared to much of the world, and that feeds an argument made by many who oppose such policies in the United States and elsewhere 
that this isn't a stance that most governments can afford to take. The money simply is not there, and that's especially true when you're working on a scale of hundreds of millions of people, rather than just a few million. And if you look at the budgets most governments are working with, it's easy to see why this argument is so frequently and successfully made. The counter-argument to that budget-related dismissal, though, is that existing expenses on government balance sheets often make little sense and evolve into their existing shapes through a whole lot of political expediency, grift, and misappropriation. Lots of hands in the pot, essentially, over the course of decades or centuries, which then leads to outflows of funds to programs and individuals and industries that don't really need those funds, or don't need funds at that scale. Even if these funds were liberated from their arguably inessential destinations, though, independent assessments of what it could cost just to provide healthcare to everyone in the United States adds up to a very significant figure that far surpasses what such savings could provide. What's become known as Medicare for All, which refers to a universal healthcare for everyone program in the United States, is estimated to cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $35 trillion over the course of a decade, which, even for the U.S., is a whole lot of money. It's close to the budget for the entire country's spending for everything over the course of that period. And though it doesn't surpass that figure, as has been inaccurately claimed by politicians on both sides of this discussion in recent years, it is close enough to warrant some level of concern. Remember, this is just healthcare, not schooling, not housing, and although it's likely that we'd see some immense savings elsewhere in the economy as a result of this investment, alongside more spending by people who could then participate in the economy more enthusiastically because less of their income would be spent on fundamental healthcare-related costs. It's prudent to make pessimistic assumptions about this sort of thing, which means we would need to nearly double our budget for about a decade, which would almost certainly mean needing to come up with a lot more tax dollars to fund that increase, which is a very unpopular position to hold for most politicians in most election cycles. Student debt is, by the numbers, a much easier hurdle to leap than healthcare. $1.6 trillion is substantially less than $35 trillion or so. But it also leads to an outcome that is a lot less overtly equally distributed throughout society, a lot less clear in terms of dollars and cents, but also in terms of other outcomes that you can promote when your party runs for office again during the next election cycle. And it's a lot more speculative in terms of support. There are solid polling numbers amongst young people, in particular, who haven't yet gone to school, who are in school, or who are still paying off their school debts in favor of this type of program. But that number decreases steadily as you go up the age bracket, and it's thought that some people feel this way because they personally scrimped, saved, and worked hard to pay off their school debt, while this next generation, under such a program, wouldn't have to do the same. Arguments that school was cheaper and more attainable back in the day aside, this peevishness is somewhat understandable, at least if you're only looking at the superficial, most direct outcomes of this kind of debt relief program, which would benefit people who have school debt or who might have school debt soon. 
substantially more than most of the rest of the population. It almost seems more likely, then, that this sort of debt forgiveness would do better, politically at least, as part of a larger package, which would include goodies for more demographics and thus would dodge that it doesn't apply to me, and as a result I'm upset about being left out and feeling left behind, political bullet that can otherwise emerge from a generally socially positive thing that nonetheless does not apply to everyone equally. Giving people different sorts of debt forgiveness, or maybe providing a tax credit or something along those lines for folks who want to go back to school to get new up-to-date education and training would provide folks more incentive to support something like a school debt forgiveness program, even if they don't actually take advantage of that tax credit or whatever else themselves, knowing that they could, if they wanted to, might be enough to help them feel not left out and left behind. There's also a chance, though, that what we're learning about inflation and its responsiveness to market fluctuations could provide a way around the tax increases that would likely otherwise be required to fund this sort of program. Recent studies have shown that despite what we've thought for decades, increasing the amount of government money in the economy doesn't seem to dramatically and immediately reduce the value of said money. So while some traditional economic textbooks claim that too much support from the government in terms of money flowing into industries and in terms of direct support for individuals will cause that money to lose its value, which is basically what inflation is, that assumption is no longer supported by the most up-to-date data. And there's a chance that this might mean we can actually afford to just print more money, figuratively at least, to make more dollars available and the government can then spend those newly minted dollars to pay off debt and provide higher education for everyone for free. Get free healthcare and housing services, too. It could all be possible, and the government could theoretically generate enough money to make it happen, literally overnight. Most of this sort of thing is done digitally at this point, so the legality and logistics would be the real issue, not the practicality of minting the money. But that would mean accepting that this is a dynamic we're trusting and committing to, that our conventional understandings of some aspects of economics might not be just a little bit off, but way off, and that a wholesale rethinking of the way that we structure our economy, our banking system, and maybe even our systems of governance would be necessary, which is a difficult and even disturbing thought for many of us, even those of us who desperately want to see those sorts of changes made via some mechanism. Whatever your position on government spending in general, and debt forgiveness of this kind more specifically, it's an interesting thought experiment to consider how society might change if our conventional economic interpretations were to be upended in this way, especially in the context of early 2021, in which we are hopefully entering the end stage, or at the very least, the second half, downslope stage, of a global pandemic that blew up a lot of our previous expectations about life and the economy and science and everything else, but also in the context of the 21st century, leading up to 2050, at which point most of the world's governing bodies have committed to being carbon neutral, or close to it, which in that context, it kind of makes sense that we would need to dramatically change or even replace much of what we've long taken for granted if we want to meet those goals. And perhaps especially if we want to also lead in terms of whatever comes next. 
you don't typically see radically different outcomes by cleaving to tradition and existing templates. You have to experiment and break some things and cobble together new dynamics and make a lot of people very uncomfortable for a while until those new methods and perspectives and paradigms become the new, cozy, normal. Conventionality and familiarity are appealing and very comforting attributes. And that's perhaps especially true after experiencing shocks to the system and emotional punches to the gut, which most of us have over the past couple of years. There's a good chance that this moment calls for new ways of thinking and a fair bit of brazenness and bravado, but our collective appetites will almost certainly be primed in at least equal measure for tradition and nostalgia. The way such concepts are framed, then, and the narrative into which they are embedded may be just as important as the concepts themselves and the numbers backing them. And that's true no matter which party, which country, and which group of people are taking the risks and doing the experiments and seeing which levers can be pulled and in which direction to achieve the results the challenges of the coming years seem likely to require of us. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Why Fish Don't Exist, A Story of Loss, Love, and the Hidden Order of Life by Lulu Miller. I picked this book up not really knowing what to expect. It was recommended by a couple of friends, and I knew vaguely it was some type of nonfiction with a twist. And that twist is essentially that it's a historical science book discussing one character within the history of science in particular, alongside his work and the type of research that he was doing, trying to organize and label all of nature, essentially, trying to categorize things in an effective and efficient way. But then it's couched within another narrative, that of the author, who herself has some interesting connections to this story. And so there's a fair bit of a more personal and contemporary narrative that provides the template for the rest of the book. But then within that template, you find an, in some ways, completely separate historical science book. And the two blend together really well. I can't offhand think of another book that blends genres in this way, and it does so very successfully. It's a really enjoyable read, but it's also incredibly informative. And if you have any interest in biology and the history of science more broadly... I definitely recommend picking up a copy. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider grabbing a copy of Why Fish Don't Exist by Lulu Miller. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, at brainlenses.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to a relatively new project of mine. It's an email publication through which I curate the news each day. You can find that at yesterdaysnewsletter.com, and you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.